I want to talk to you this morning about Elisha. Last weekend we looked at Elijah, and now we're going to look at his successor, Elisha, and uh, in his particular ministry and uh, the emphasis in his ministry. It's important for us to see this uh, because it has a bearing on our own life. So if you open your Bibles to the book of 2 Kings, we're going to breeze through the first ten chapters. I know that's hard for you to believe, but we're going to do it. And in a timely manner, may I say. Question. What do you suppose is man's greatest need? Or hunger, if you will, or desire, or any one of those synonyms? What's, what is it? To be satisfied, love, relationship. To be accepted, companionship. Well, you're all right. May I suggest this? Man's greatest hunger is to live. His greatest need, his greatest desire, his greatest appetite is to live, to have life. And everything you said is true because they're all expressions of life, aren't they? More than anything else, I want to live. It's not my favorite thing to be sick. I mean, I can't, I don't lay around and think about, oh man, I can hardly wait the next time I'm sick. No, I I want to live. I want, I want to experience health. I want to experience life. There's an impulse in me. It's built into me. I have a hunger to live. Is that a fair statement? We want to experience well-being. We just had a death in our house. this last week. We have three dogs, now we have two. Our littlest little chihuahua, Phoebe, went to doggy heaven. And, uh, you know, and while we, you know, our families and it, it, a pet, a dog, but you still miss them when you got them for 10, 12, 15 years, you know. But the point of that is even an animal hungers to live. She was just wasn't in pain that we knew, but but just incapacitated, and but just you could see she wanted to live. She'd perk up and her ears would go up and her little tail would wag, and she wanted a life. We're, we're like that. All of God's creatures hunger to live. This is the essence of Elisha's ministry: life, life. In contrast to Elijah's ministry, as we shall see. We first meet Elisha uh, back in 1 Kings chapter 19, when he is uh, literally called by Elijah. Remember, God had told Elijah, after he'd recovered from his depressive time, to go and anoint uh, uh, two kings and as well Elisha, who would now succeed Elijah in the prophetic ministry. And so Elijah goes and finds Elisha. Uh, Elijah is plowing a field. Elisha throws his garment around his shoulders, indicative of a prophetic call. And uh, Elisha says, uh, responds to the call, says, let me go say goodbye to my family. That, uh, That echoes the New Testament. Remember when Jesus called people and they said, well, let me go do this, let me go do that. And Jesus, Jesus his call to discipleship was much sterner than Elijah's. Elijah says, lets him go, and okay, go do what you have to do. Jesus says, whoever set his hand to the plow and looks back is not worthy of my kingdom. And so he goes and he says goodbye to his family and he, he, he takes his plow and all the equipment and, 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 and builds a fire with it. He burns, literally burns his bridge to the past. And he picks up the mantle to be the prophet. And it's shortly thereafter that Elijah is taken up into heaven in the fiery chariot. And and Elisha gets a double portion, asks for a double portion of the glory and the power uh, and the effectiveness uh, that Elijah had upon himself. Elisha's ministry, as we shall see, was an extraordinary ministry. Again and again and again, uh, we see the supernatural just flame through it in the most striking ways. 
His ministry was even more interspersed with miracles than was Elijah's ministry. And Elijah, would you agree, had a powerful ministry? Miraculous. We saw some of that last time. In fact, there are no miracles in the Old Testament except those of Moses, which can be compared in number or variety uh, with the wonders that Elisha did. In fact, in the first ten chapters of Second Kings, there are recorded some 17 miracles uh, worked at the hand of Elisha. The full list of his miracles, including uh, the miracle at his own grave, totals about 20 miracles. There may have been more. We don't know. The record doesn't tell us uh, how many more miracles, if there were more, done by Elisha. And uh, I'm reminded of John's words about Jesus in John's Gospel, chapter 21, when he speaks of Jesus' ministry. He says, Jesus did uh, many other things as well. If every one of them were written down, I suppose that even the whole world would not have been uh, the room for uh, for all the books that would be written that recorded all that Jesus did. The point I want to make is that Elisha had a very prolific, powerful, miraculous ministry. And uh, it, it's possible that more and more miracles were done. But we have 20-some miracles recorded, and they're recorded selectively because of, one, their importance, and secondly... Uh, because they're representative of a spiritual reality, a spiritual truth. In other words, the miracles aren't just random. God has designed and orchestrated these miracles. The Holy Spirit has recorded them for a purpose to tell us something. Now, certainly, they meet particular and specific needs in the context of the text and the account and the situation in which they are found. But beyond that, there are greater realities which the Holy Spirit wants us to understand and to see. They point to something very, very significant for us. And so that's why they're recorded. As we examine Elisha's ministry and his miracles, we can detect, and I think this is one of the clear uh, testimonies, we detect uh, some anticipation of Jesus' own ministry. First, we get a hint of this in the contrast between Elijah and Elisha. This same contrast can be seen between John the Baptist and Jesus. You have Elijah and Elisha. You have John the Baptist, you have Jesus. John the Baptist had a, had a ministry that was characterized by certain things, similar to Elijah's. We see in Elisha's ministry certain characteristics that are seen to be characteristic of Jesus' ministry. So it's very possible that as John the, or as Elijah was a forerunner before John the Baptist, so Elisha is a type, if you will, of Jesus. If you go back to uh, the Gospels, uh, in uh, Luke chapter 1, verse 17, you see uh, there is a specific stated type, typological link between Elijah and John the Baptist. The angel Gabriel Speaking of John the Baptist says, he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and the power of Elijah. So clearly there is a connection between uh, uh, Elijah and John the Baptist. Jesus himself in Matthew's gospel, chapter 11, says of John, he said, he is the Elijah who was to come. So Jesus specifically identifies John with Elijah. He does so again later on in Matthew chapter 17. Uh, when being questioned by his disciples, he says, to be sure, Elijah comes and will restore all things. So there's a, Elijah still yet to come, but then he says, but I tell you, Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him. In other words, he's speaking of John the Baptist there, who had an Elijah kind of ministry. Does that make sense to you? you follow that? He says, they didn't uh, recognize him, but have done to him everything they wish and in the same way, the Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was talking to them about John the Baptist. Though he's using Elijah's name, they realize he's talking about John the Baptist here. So we see, we see clearly in the, in the Bible reflected uh, that there is a, a link between Elijah and John the Baptist. Their ministries were similar. So the question could be asked... Uh, is there a similar type connection between Elisha and Jesus? Because, if you recall, Elisha followed right on the heels of Elijah. 
was contemporaneous with him. Jesus falls right on the heels of John the Baptist, is contemporaneous with him. Does that make sense? So it's logical for us to look and see, is there a connection there? Now, there's no actual statement in the scriptures whatsoever uh, saying that there is that connection, but the resemblances are so definite, uh, they can't be an accident, and we're going to explore some of those resemblances. Elijah, uh, like John the Baptist, we're told in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 11, came neither eating nor drinking. In other words, he, he, he was somebody that, that lived a very ascetic lifestyle. He was in the deserts. He was solitary. He lived apart from people. That was Elijah's ministry. That was the same characteristic of John the Baptist's ministry. Elisha, on the other hand, like our Lord Jesus, again, Matthew chapter 11, verse 19, came eating and drinking and mingled freely with people. Uh, Elisha didn't have shaggy hair. He didn't wear camel hair clothes. Uh, Elisha uh, was not out in the in the in the in the in the the ravine being fed by ravens. He didn't live in the desert. Uh, Elisha was normally clothed, normally uh, groomed. He had a, a very gentle and very sociable presence, even though he did curse uh, in that one situation uh, those boys that teased him and. Uh, Elisha even had a house. He, had, he, only, he even had his own residence built for him. Uh, you read about that in, in uh, chapter 4 of Chronicles. Instead of fire, instead of storm, uh, instead of sternness, instead of judgment, which characterized Elijah's ministry, you have Elisha's ministry characterized by healing, by tenderness, by gentle words. Then again, there are special features in Elisha's ministry also. And these special features gave, again, a resemblance of the ministry of our Lord Jesus. In Elisha's ministry, he ministered just like Jesus did outside of Israel. Elisha ministered up in Damascus. Jesus ministered up in Samaria. He ministered also in the Decapolis, the ten cities, the Gentiles. So there's a suggestion of Jesus in Elisha's ministry also. Uh, Luke, in chapter 2, characterizes Jesus' ministry. He says, uh, being the glory of his people Israel, he was also to be a light for the revelation to the Gentiles. So there's a ministry not only to God's people, but a ministry outside to the Gentiles. There's those two similarities uh, between Elisha and Jesus' ministry. Elisha's ministry also, if you... Uh, we'll note in chapter 4, and we'll look at this a little bit more detail in a moment, uh, the 20 barley loaves, when he, he miraculously called the, caused the 20 barley loaves to be multiplied and fed uh, a large number of people. And as well, in uh, chapter 4, he's multiplying the widow's jar of oil. Again, remind us of the Lord who himself took five barley loaves in uh, uh, John chapter 6 and fed 5,000. So again, you see these terrific similarities in multiplying and meeting needs. Again, the miracle of Naaman's cleansing. And this is a, this is a terrific miracle. We'll, we'll look at that in a little bit more detail. Just his cleansing from leprosy at, at, at Elisha's word. And Elisha didn't even speak to him directly. He spoke to him through, through a servant. He says, go, go tell Naaman to go down and, and wash in the, 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 the old Jordan River seven times, dip in the, in the Jordan seven times, and he'll be, he'll be cleansed, he'll be healed. And uh, that is probably one of the greatest Old Testament illustrations of, of the gospel way of salvation. And I want to describe that to you uh, in just a little bit when we get in more detail. Nor can we fail to add that Elisha's weeping in, act, in uh, chapter 8 of Second Kings, weeping over the evils which he saw coming upon his nation. Here Israel is, is coming under judgment from God. And Elisha weeps over the nation and over what's going to happen to them. And he's unable to do anything to avert their idolatry and they're coming to a place of being judged by God uh, through the Assyrian people. So he weeps over them. And that reminds us of Luke chapter 19 of Jesus' sorrow over Jerusalem, where Jesus weeps over Jerusalem. 
So again, these terrific similarities, uh, and they just continue to mount as you read through this account. And you, and you look at it, you read these accounts, and you look at them through eyes. Remember I told you a long time ago, when you read the Old Testament, try to find Jesus there. Try to find salvation there. And when you, when you look and you read that way, you begin to see these things. They just begin to pop off the page at you. There's a, the parallel between Elisha and Jesus can also be seen in the main emphasis. The main emphasis in Elisha's ministry. The main emphasis in Elisha's ministry is that of resurrection and the hope of new life. Resurrection and the hope of new life. Now, the distinguishing thing in Elijah's ministry, just like that of John the Baptist, was always a stern call to repentance. And that stern call to repentance was always accompanied by warnings of impending judgment. So Elijah, John the Baptist, are saying, repent, repent, judgment is going to come. I mean, John the Baptist calls, uh, remember the, the, the leaders in Israel, uh, uh, what did he call them? I just lost it. Vipers, a brood of vipers, yes, thank you. I had it right there and it just disappeared. Can you imagine that? <laughs> brood of vipers. But in contrast, Elisha's ministry pictured this, the, the, the miracle of resurrection in the hope of new life. From death to life. Does that sound familiar? That's the very thing that characterized Jesus' ministry. Hope of new life. Resurrection. Now, at this point in history, when you read the text, you see the nation of Israel is in a woeful condition. They have now sunk to such a low state in their in their idolatry, in their immoral practices. They are absolutely despicable, rebelling from God. And if there is to be any hope of revival amongst that nation, uh, that would have to be, it would have to come by a resurrection. Things are so bad. They're, they're dead, if you will. And uh, uh, a couple weeks ago, Kevin taught you out of uh, Ephesians chapter 2. Is that correct? Talked about, talked about what's our condition. We're, we're born what? Objects of wrath, Paul says. We're born dead in sins and trespasses. We're dead. It requires God to raise us from the dead. You, you can't raise yourself. You can't heal yourself. You can't save yourself. And Israel at this point is dead spiritually. So now, the prophet Elisha is going to prophesy to Israel, and he's going to prophesy to them through all the miraculous works that God is going to give him to do. Israel is going to be given to see in a succession of these symbolic miracles. Now, the miracles are symbolic in the sense that they represent something, but they're specific in terms that they meet a particular need in a given context. But they're going to be given to see in this succession miracles the power of resurrection at work and the hope of new life, which is theirs in Yahweh, their God, if they would just return to him, if they would just trust him. That's the principle. If we would trust him, even as Christians. Does anybody really trust him like we could? Or like we need to? Do we trust him like we really need to? No, we, we still, you know, are reluctant. We have to be encouraged and reminded, trust him, trust him. That's why the church is so important, because you come and, and people encourage you. Okay, I'm going to trust him. I'm going to trust him. I'm going to take a step of faith here, right? That's what it's about. If I'm to experience ongoing his resurrection life, and if I'm to experience and realize this hope, of life. And it goes back to my initial question to you, you know, what is our greatest hunger? What's our greatest need? To live. If I'm to have life and have it to the full, Jesus says in John 10, 10, what? I came that you should have life. Life. If the truth be known, there are so many people who are not experiencing, realizing life. They're existing 
They're just simply existing. They're, they're just kind of floating. You know, is this all there is? Is this it? Reminds me of the old movie years ago. They shoot horses, don't they? You know, this is it. That's it. It's all futility. We have a hope for life. God means for us, and that doesn't, that, that certainly speaks to life after death, but, but the reality is you can have life today. Your life can be full. If we would just trust Him. And all these miracles, now, as we're going to begin to examine, not all of them, but, but a handful of them, the, the common thread, these miracles are a testimony to this nation who is way down, they've turned from God. Rather than death, you can have life. Just turn back to him. Just turn back to him. His first miracle in chapter 2, turn over to chapter 2 with me. The healing of the death-giving waters of Jericho. Remember, Jericho was was forbidden by God to be rebuilt. And yet, uh, a man by the name of Hael, under Ahab's authorization, went and rebuilt the city, lost his two sons in the process. Uh, But nonetheless, the city's been rebuilt. Now, Verse 19 of chapter 2 tells us, The men of the city said to Elisha, Look, our Lord, this town is well situated, as you can see. In other words, Jericho was strategic. It was a very, very important city. That's why Ahab had it rebuilt. He says, This city is well situated, as you can see, but the water is bad and the land is unproductive. So Elisha says, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him. Then he went out to the spring, threw salt into it, saying, this is what the Lord says, I've healed this water, never again will it cause death or make the land unproductive, and the water has remained wholesome to this day, according to the word Elisha had spoken. So you have pictured right there, this miracle, you have death-giving waters, but those waters are healed, and now they give what? Life. That which had given death, now gives life. That's the theme of Elisha's ministry. That's the theme of Jesus' ministry. Where there is death, there can be resurrection and the hope of new life. And this is a testimony to, the, to all of Israel, or at least certainly to the men of Jericho. Death to life. Death to life. Say that with me. Death to life. Elisha made the waters pure. How? How did he do this? Did he just wave his magic wand over the waters? No, he put what in them? Salt. Salt. Do we know anything about salt? Yeah. In fact, Jesus tells his own disciples in uh, uh, Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, he says, you now are the what? Salt of the earth. You're the salt of the earth. And I'm sprinkling you in the world so that you can flavor the world, so that you can uh, retard the uh, the wickedness of the world, because you know salt acts as a preservative, and we can bring life where there's death. Isn't that a beautiful picture? So here's Elisha using salt. Jesus' ministry talks specifically about salt. The church is meant to be salt. We're meant to be salt. And if we, we can perform the very same prophetic mission by Elisha uh, wherever we go, by simply being salt. I have to remind myself, I'm salt. I'm, I'm here to flavor. I'm here to retard uh, the breakdown. I'm, I'm here to make a difference just by my very presence. And that's why it's imperative that I'm walking in the Spirit, because as I'm walking in the Spirit, and I, I may not even say a word, but by, by, my, by my very presence... The Spirit of God is there to work because I no longer live. He lives in me. He works through me. Okay? So uh, by living out the truth of who I am, I have to walk and live my life believing, knowing who I am in Christ, an agent of redemption. I bring the Holy Spirit with me wherever I go. And, and, And as I'm consciously aware of that, practicing that, practicing that, then I, I begin to see opportunities whereby uh, I can sprinkle a little salt in someone's life. Does that make sense to you? We're called to be salt. Amen? Now, 
as a great example of this, I want to talk about Moran and Melissa's ministry. They're here this morning with us. They're back. Melissa's going to have her baby any day now. So she's sitting back there holding on. I told her not this morning. And uh, we, were, we were talking last week about, uh, I, I just wanted to bring me up to speed and, and up to date. How many received their newsletter? Uh, okay, not enough of you. You guys ought to get on his newsletter. Okay. And uh, you just check with us. We'll give you the website and stuff. But uh, we were talking about the ministry, and I wanted to fill in the blanks for me and update me, and, and, and not only to find out how they're doing, but also how what's going on in Israel. And they began to tell me these marvelous accounts of how God was using them their purpose is to be salt. They're not standing on the street corners preaching. They're not, you know, they're not holding rallies. They're not, uh, you know, having a church. They're just being salt. They're going to where the needs are and reaching into people's lives. Unbelievers, uh, Israeli Jews, Israeli Arabs, across the board, meeting needs. Uh, the most recent thing is that they want to build a, a bomb shelter. Because you know the bombs are getting lobbed over in, in a certain certain village uh, next to a particular. And they, I think I have the story right. Next to a, yeah, next to Gaza, uh, and this and, and the community is all senior citizens. And so these bombs are coming over, and so uh, Moran goes in and says, "I want to build you a bomb shelter." And so all these little different things are ministering in this area, this area, this area, helping this family, these people, that people. And people are asking them, why are you doing this? Now, they can't, they can't outright proselytize. They can't be bold and like you and I could here. They have to wait. And so all these little episodes of being salt are giving people opportunity to say, why are you doing this? Now they get to share about Yeshua. Isn't that right? Now, Moran was telling me also that he says, he says there are more people open, just open, like never before in Israel. They want to know more. But why? Because they see God doing miraculous things on their behalf by people they don't know, and there's no ulterior motive. Not even the government is helping these people. They're, they're left to themselves. And here's hope for Israel. You guys, through Moran and Melissa, coming in and helping. Isn't that marvelous? See, it's just being salt. And, uh, and uh, I mean, we're expecting to see great revival, aren't we, Moran? Great revival in Israel. So give God a hand for that, would you? In chapter 3 of 2 Kings, uh, we see another episode, and this is a miraculous deliverance of three armies, uh, the armies of Israel, Judah, and uh, uh, Edom. They're, they've gone down to attack Moab. Moab has been a vassal state to King Ahab. And remember, Ahab was one of the wickedest kings to rule in the northern kingdom. And Ahab has now since died off. And his son rises to take the throne, and he's a very weak leader. So Moab sees this as an opportunity to secede and to not have to pay tribute to Israel any longer. And so uh, the king of Israel now gathers up uh, Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, and the king of Edom, and says, help me uh, get Moab back into the fold, if you will. And so they go down to attack Moab and to, uh, to get him back again. But they take a long route, and what happens is they run out of water, and they're in danger themselves now of being of dying off. And so they cry out. Elisha shows up on the scene. And for the sake of Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, Elisha tells him what to do. And literally, a miracle happens that saves the three armies from certain death. And you read the account. I'm just summarizing it for you. But the, the bottom line is that these armies are saved from death by a miraculous water supply. Death to life. God had sent necessary life-giving water, but in the aftermath of sending that water to save the armies of Israel and Judah and Edom, uh, those waters were to spell death for the Moabites, just as God saved Noah and his family through the flood waters. And those floodwaters destroyed all the unbelieving world. And as well as God saved Israel from Egypt through the parting of the Red Sea, you see this common theme of water 
God using water. He hit the resources of God for our salvation are beyond all of our understanding, aren't they? He can use anything and everything. But in those instances, we see him using water to save his people from certain death, to bring life. There's a parallel. Peter, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 21, Peter tells us, baptism now saves you. Does baptism save us? No, baptism doesn't save us. But what he means is, very simply, uh, that saving faith is expressed through our testimony, through baptism. Jesus saves me, and I, I express that, I evidence that through my water baptism. This is why every Christian is commanded to be baptized. This is why every Christian should be baptized. If you're not baptized, then you need to be. You need to come. We're having the next baptism at the beach this summer, and you want to be baptized. But the point is, here's God saving people, and our testimony is, again, through water. Now, look at the picture. When we, we baptize by immersion, you know, and so when we take you down under the water, the picture is what? Our death with Christ. Coming back up to, under the water, pictures being raised to new life with him. Death to life. So back here, Elisha's ministry, all these armies are saved by water. You see that? Noah and his family saved by water. Israel saved by water. All those connections are made. And the bottom line is that salvation comes to us because Christ has died, has been raised from the dead. Death to life. Death to life. There's always that connection. In Acts chapter 2, Peter replies in response to his preaching, his very first sermon, and, and, the, and the people who heard him preaching in Jerusalem, uh, Luke records they were, they were cut to the heart. In other words, they were convicted. The word of God penetrated deeply and spoke to them. And they called out to Peter and said, Peter, what should we do? And his response to them was, repent and be baptized. Repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so their sins may be forgiven and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Again, this picture of if you repent, if you'll be baptized, you come from death to life. Death to life. In chapter 4 of Second Kings, we read uh, of the raising of the Shunammite woman's son from death to new life. Again, the same theme. I want you to notice verse 34 with me in uh, chapter 4. Speaking of Elisha, Then he got on the bed, lay upon the boy, mouth to mouth, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. As he stretched himself out upon him, the boy's body grew warm. Elisha turned away, walked back and forth in the room, and then got on the, on the bed, stretched out upon him once more. The boy sneezed seven times and opened his eyes. This is, a, this is a graphic description. Now, if you just try to picture this, here's this boy, dead body, and Elisha lays on top of him, stretches himself out, mouth to mouth, palm to palm. Graphic, graphic description of what it costs to bring the dead to life. What does it cost to bring the dead to life? It costs everything, doesn't it? And only life can restore life. Only life can, death can't restore life. Only life can restore life. Only the uttermost giving of self. This is a picture of Elisha. The uttermost giving. He's stretched out. He's on top. He's, he's committed. He's going to stay there until his boys come back. Only the uttermost giving of self can breathe the breath of life into the otherwise dead. You gotta stay with it. You gotta pray continuously. You're not, you don't give up. The uttermost giving of self. This is why, this is why in fasting we're, 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 we're giving ourselves. We're humbling ourselves. We're, we're stretching ourselves. Only the stretching of our soul upon the soul of one out of which the semblance of all life has vanished can revive it. It's not something we do easily or at our convenience. 
If you're discipling somebody, if you're walking with somebody, if you're trying to see someone come from death to life, the amount of personal investment in your life to do that is tremendous. I mean, we all want people just to fall off the tree in our hands, don't we? We just want them to just be perfect. But that's not the case. It takes a terrific amount of effort. It's kind of like raising kids. Raising kids is for heroes. (laughs) But you don't realize you're a hero until later on. And it's a very imperfect practice. But it takes everything you got, doesn't it? Right, parents? Everything. Everything. And it was by Christ stretching himself out on that cross. The imagery is just so, so marvelous that he brought life to those who were dead in trespasses and sins. If he didn't stretch himself out on that cross, we could not have been brought from death to life. So do you see Elisha stretching himself on his body? Stretching, stretching to give life to that which is dead. And that's exactly what Christ has done. Does that make sense? The raising of the Shunammite woman's son is followed in, again, in chapter 4, verses 38 through 41, by the poisoned food that's made fit to eat. Again, same, same truth. Death in the pot is changed to life and wholesomeness. It's a picture, just simply again, of salvation from death to life. Elisha's ministry is characterized by this. This is what Jesus said. I came to bring life. Those who are dead, I came to give life. That's our message, is it not? You can have life. You can have it to the full. You can have it to the max. Jesus wants to save you from death to life. At the close of chapter 4, in verses 42 through 44, is the miraculous multiplication of the barley loaves. Verse 42, a man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God 20 loaves of barley bread baked from the first ripe grain, along with some heads of new grain. Now, the first, the first grain, the first fruits, if you recall from Leviticus, the first fruits was to go where? Where was the first fruits to be taken? Yeah, you give it to the priests. Because that's an offering unto the Lord. The first fruits belong to God, right? But what you need to know is in Israel now, there is no temple, there is no priesthood. Under Ahab, all the priests have fled, uh, who, who weren't killed by Jezebel, they fled to the south, to Judah. And that's where the temple is in Jerusalem anyway. So there's no priests up in the northern kingdom for the people to bring the first fruits to. There's only one person who represents God. Who's that person? Elisha. That's why they bring him the new grain and the loaves, the barley loaves. And notice, he takes pains to say the first ripe grain along with some heads of new grain. So that is indicative of the first fruits. Elisha says, okay, now here's what you do with it. Give it to the people. There's no temple. There's no table of showbread. There's no place to offer it to God. So he says, give it to the people. The response is, how can I set uh, set this before a hundred men? I only got 20 barley loaves. This is not going to feed a hundred guys. But Elisha answered, give it to the people to eat, for this is what the Lord says. They will eat and have some left over. Does that sound vaguely familiar like somebody else? Yeah. Yeah. Remember when Jesus multiplied the five barley loaves and fed 5,000? He said there are going to be some left over. I don't know about you, but that connection is too clear just to ignore between Elisha and Jesus and their ministries. Verse 44, then he said it before them, and they ate, and some uh, there was some left over according to the word of the Lord. You know, what is impossible for man is possible with God. What is impossible for man is possible with God. God, he's the God of the impossible. 
growing up, I, I, I grew up Roman Catholic and up here at America Martyrs, and, and we used to have a, there was a patron saint that we used to pray to all the time, St. Jude, who was the saint of impossible circumstances. And on Wednesday nights, you'd go up there, and, and we would do what's called a novena. Any, any Catholics here? Remember, what, remember novenas? Do you remember that? You have to come every so many successes. I think it's nine weeks in a row, and you burn candles, and you have to offer prayers and do all the rigmarole. And we, I used to pray to St. Jude, because there was lots of impossible circumstances in my life. I'm going, help, St. Jude! <laughs> I just didn't know at the time I would go right to Jesus. You know, it was either Mary or St. Jude. Poor St. Christopher. <laughs> you know, they desainted him years ago. He's now Mr. Christopher. <laughs> Growing up, we used to wear these little St. Christopher medals, you know. If you were going with a girl, you'd give her your St. Christopher and she'd give you yours. Do you remember that stuff? Did you guys do that? <laughs> you did too? Oh, my. Things we come up with, huh? Where was I? Oh, what's impossible for man is possible with God. So I used to, I used to have all these impossible circumstances. I used to pray. And you know what? I could have just gone right to Jesus. No one told me. And no matter what we face in our life, I was, I was telling somebody just the other day uh, how great it is. Maybe it was my wife. Uh, I talked to so many people during the week, you know. I was saying, you know, how, how great it is, how just great it is to know that God is on the throne, He's in charge, and I can trust Him. And I could just keep myself back from those anxieties and fears and freaking out, you know. God knows. And I, I, stuff I can't make happen, He can do it. And I can say, Lord, you do it. Your will be done. Your will is the very best anyway. It's impossible with man to save himself. It's impossible. Absolutely impossible. I don't care how good you are. I don't care if you're Bill Gates and Warren Buffett and you're giving away billions of dollars, it's not going to buy you salvation. It's impossible for man to save himself. Only God can save. And he does so miraculously through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And Jesus, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Jesus is the first fruits. So you see an allusion right here in the context of this ministry to Jesus himself, the first fruits. You offer the first fruits to God, and, the, and, and that guarantees the, the, the harvest. Proverbs says, uh, offer the first fruits of your labor to the Lord, and, and that guarantees the harvest. That's just a principle in giving. And God gave his very best, didn't he? And that guarantees the harvest. So we see all these things. Again, the principle is, is life, uh, uh, death to life. Death to life. And it's only in and through Christ that we genuinely have the hope of new life. Apart from him, there is no genuine confidence. None. You can speculate. You can say, well, I hope. You know, people say, but are you sure? Do you know? Yes. Why? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. He's the first fruits of those who are to follow, and I'm among that group that's going to follow. Hallelujah. In chapter 5, we see the healing of Naaman. This is a, this is a terrific, this is kind of the climax, if you will, of our text this morning and the, the miracles that he does. The healing of Naaman by the symbolic, now note this please, by the symbolic baptism in the Jordan River. I say that because Though he's healed of leprosy, leprosy represents what? Sin and death. It represents sin and death. So uh, the washing away of sin and death symbolized by that leprosy and the coming up out of that water to new life. The whole gospel is included right here, is signified right here in this miracle by Elisha uh, with respect to Naaman. Just think, each of us, each of us, if we would not hide our faith in God, but use it, as did that young anonymous Hebrew girl that was carried off into captivity. Remember her? Not even named. 
But she's forever mortalized in the scriptures here as being the one who's the interface who announces to Naaman's wife, if my master would just go down and see the prophet down in Israel, uh, then he could be healed. You and I have a great testimony. You and I can encourage people. We say, tell people, people who are, who, whose lives are not making sense. People have no hope. People are, you watch them and they try to pull it together and they put on a facade. We, we can recognize that, don't we? We do it ourselves, don't we? We just encourage you to relax. Trust in the Lord. Trust in the Lord. You don't have to fake it. You don't have to pretend. You don't have to pull it all together yourself. You can relax and, and walk, walk after Jesus. Just walk after Jesus. Just make some simple choices every day. And watch what he does in your life. Watch how he brings from death to life. We would see the same things going on in the lives of other people. Now, when Naaman went to his boss and asked permission to come down to, to Israel, his boss gave him the permission. And uh, he took much treasure with him, didn't he? A lot of money. He's going to get down and he's going to pay for this. And yet the price he would have to pay to be healed of his leprosy was even greater than he could pay. Couldn't pay it with money. Money can do much, can't it? Yet it cannot purchase for a man the healing of his soul, nor can it purchase the peace of mind. Peace of mind. Naaman had to travel all the way from Syria down to see Elisha. Point being is the gods of Syria were not up to the task. His own gods couldn't do this. No, it couldn't make a difference. The king of Israel, Jehoram, when when Naaman got there, Jehoram couldn't do anything. He was powerless. He says, who am I? Why do you come to me? Secular forces cannot deal with a moral emergency. Naaman's got a moral emergency in his life. This is the, the leprosy signatory of a, of a moral emergency. Secular forces cannot deal with that. Only the man or woman of God can deal with those things. Only the man or woman of God can pray. Only the man or woman of God can direct you to the, to the, to the healing source. Not secular forces. Elisha tells Naaman through his messenger to go and wash seven times in the Jordan. To which Naaman says, if that's what I have to do, that's what I'll do. Okay, thank you for telling me. Is that what happens? No. That seems to be kind of endemic in us, isn't it? Rebellion. No, I want something more elaborate, more special. Would that Naaman had simply obeyed, huh? Would the Naaman had simply take Elisha's word for it? Would the Naaman have just gone, okay, cool, I'm just going to go down and do it? Would that you would obey the pastor? Let's do what the pastor says. No, Naaman's indignant. His pride causes him to turn away in disappointed anger and rage, doesn't he? Plenty of people are in that same mood today. Same mood. Modern prophets today tell people that secular sources of inspiration and illumination will never heal them of their leprosy. This is the, this is the gospel message. As Elisha had prophesied, so do modern prophets today. We say, look, you, you can't go to secular sources and get healed of your leprosy. You may get temporary relief, palliative relief, but, but it's not going to heal you. It's going to come back. It's going to plague you and haunt you all the way into eternity. No. How do you get healed? Just like in the day of Naaman, we tell people that they must wash in the old river Jordan. You must wash in the old river Jordan. What do you mean by that? I'm using the, the river Jordan as a metaphor for that old time religion. That old time, not the modern religion, the old time religion. What is that? You must find your healing in the church. You must come participate in the life of the church. You've got to keep coming, keep coming, keep coming. Uh, you find your healing in the, the Sabbath. 
How many people today don't even observe a Sabbath? They don't even rest. Busy, 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 busy. Running here, running there, taking my kids to a game, doing this, doing that. That's not rest. Find your healing in worship. Just quietly worship. You know, it's not that you have to come and sing songs. It's just you have an attitude of worship, which expresses trust. You find peace. That old river Jordan, you come to the Bible. You read the Bible. You read the Bible. You read it and say, God, open my eyes. Show me. Show me. That old river Jordan of of consecrating prayer. You're on your knees. Again, not just asking for things. Consecrating yourself to God. Committing yourself to God. The, the image, if you will, of the, the, the man who is going to propose to his, his, his beloved, and he gets down on one knee and he says, will you marry me? He's consecrating himself. When we pray, a great posture to pray is, is on your knees. Symbolic of humbling yourself. Well, can I just pray laying down? Can I pray sitting up? Can I pray? Yeah, you can pray. But, but there's something to be said about kneeling down that many of us just rebel against. Well, I don't have to kneel. See, the very fact that you say, well, I don't have to kneel, indicates to me there's some measure of rebellion there. Surrender. Kneel down. Consecrate yourself. Come to the old River Jordan. Come to that old-time religion, if you will, if I can use that expression. But the modern mind rebels. The modern mind rebels from this. There's something that seems too narrow, something that seems too provincial in this repeated assertion that a man cannot find health, cannot find healing, except as he dips into this old Jordan River. Ah, can't, I don't see it. Can't be that. It's gotta be, it's gotta be something more elaborate. Naaman said, well, he should come out and wave his hand and do the dance and make some great pronouncement. No, just go down into the river. Just humble yourself and come before him. Well, are not the Abana and the Farpar rivers of our modern world just as good, if not better, than this old Jordan? Certainly in our modern scientific reason, age of reason and rationality and Don't we have resources now that we never had back then and we can use these words? Aren't they just as good? Aren't they just as beautiful? Beloved, the answer to that question is the same today as in the day of Naaman. It's not a question of whether secular sources of inspiration, insight, understanding are not more beautiful than the Jordan. It's a question only of which which of the two can heal men of their leprosy. What can heal me? Where do I find life? Really? I go to this guru, that guru, talk to this person, read that book. Oprah tells me, learn the secret. <laughs> I've had people in our church come and say, Oh, you, have you read this book? <laughs> no, and I'm not going to. Let me tell you why I'm not going to. I don't follow Oprah, I follow Jesus Christ. If, if, don't, don't read that book, read this book. The truth of God, the word of God. Not some compilation of, of things cobbled together to satiate your own fleshly greedy appetite. The word of God. You see, the longing... To be healed is still the longing of man today, isn't it? The longing to be healed. In spite of all that we possess, we're really still sick at heart. And we know we are. In every every person, there is just below the surface, there is this vague sense of dis-ease. And we, and we just, we try to use reason 
We try to reason our way out of it. We go into our past. Well, this is the way I am. No, this is the way you are because you're a sinner. You're a sinner. Is it nature or nurture? Nature or nurture? You've heard that debate, right? It's my nature. I'm, I'm, I'm born an object of wrath. I'm separated from God. My greatest need, if I'm to have life, is to come to God. Nothing else is going to solve my problems. In spite of all that I possess, I, I know my problems. The sense of unworthiness remains, though people try to use reason as a remedy. When it comes to this washing of the soul, this cure of life at its center, there's no substitute for the old river Jordan. No substitute. As simple, contrite-hearted men and women, we must go and wash in this Jordan if we would be clean. But this demands much of the modern man, just as it did of Naaman. Yet Naaman conquered his pride, didn't he? He conquered his pride. He stilled his vanity. And proud soldier that he was, he went down and dipped how many times? Seven times. One time wouldn't do it. You know, a thought occurred to me Friday night when I reached this place. Just to show you how the Holy Spirit inspires you. Just on the fly. I said, I, 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 I said that very same thing. He, he went down and dipped seven times. One time wouldn't do it. And I, you know how I tell people, come six times in a row? I have to amend that now. Come seven times in a row. So those of you here with us for the first time, you come seven times in a row and we will grow on you. Okay? I just, it just, it just occurred to me, wow. Dip seven times. Seven, you know, in the people who practice things, seven in the Bible means completeness and so forth. So, whatever that's worth. He dipped seven times, and in verse 14 of chapter 5, we read this, And his flesh was restored and became clean like that of a young boy. From death to life. From death to life. Pride, and only pride, keeps us, keeps many a modern Naaman from receiving the blessing which came to ancient Naaman. It's pride. Simply pride. If we can just forget our pride put off our intellectual and our critical apparatus. Well, you know, I'm not sure. I gotta, if we just set that stuff aside and go right down into the stream of the life-giving life of God, then we too can be made new. Just come to Jesus. Just come to Jesus. Just keep coming. My refrain to any number of people over the years they have all these intellectual questions, all this stuff going on there. I said, look, just keep coming. Just keep coming. Keep opening your Bible and reading it. Keep coming. Just keep coming. Just keep coming. Just. 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 Now, question. Has anyone noticed just keeping coming? Has it made a difference in their life? Okay, not everybody yet. <laughs> to you, I would say what? <laughs> Keep coming. Keep going and dipping in that old Jordan River, if you will. If you'll bathe your soul in a real Sabbath each week. If you'll bathe your soul in real worship each week. If you'll dip into the Bible. And if you'll know moments of consecrating prayer. At the men's retreat, I told the men, I said, uh, I said, you know, you can, you can stop during the day and just, just for a moment. Just get still. God says, be still and know that I'm God. Just be still. Women can do this too. Just stop. Be still. Quiet your soul. Just just for a moment. And say, 
God, I trust you. I trust you. I trust you. And just do that periodically throughout the day, every day. Do you suppose that might make a difference? Absolutely. Absolutely. You see, then a if we would just keep coming, if we would just keep involved in worship and in and, and, and the scriptures and prayer, trusting God, you begin to see miracles happen. You begin to see this transformation of death to life. Now you begin to see hope generated in you. The Bible says Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't change. The same Jesus we read about in the Gospels, the same Elisha uh, prototype of Jesus, is the same Jesus today. People say, why don't we, why don't we see the miracles? Why don't we see the, the, the kinds of things that God, God did back in the Bible? Because we're not stay, taking time with Him. We're not immersing ourselves in the things of God. In chapter 6, you see the miracle of the recovered axe head. This was a great one. You know, I looked at that and I said, axe head. And then I looked at verse 6, the latter part of verse 6. The latter part of verse 6 says that, that the axe head was made to float. And then it became really clear to me. Here is a life power... Overcoming the downward pull of death. The axe head was down at the bottom of the Jordan. Some guy with a borrowed axe is chopping down a tree. All of a sudden, the axe head flies off, goes down in the Jordan. He's in trouble. He can't be productive. You know, his friend's axe is gone. It's no more. Elisha comes, says, where to go? Throw a stick in. And then all of a sudden, the axe head floats to, floats to the surface. Is that cool? What's that a picture of? It's a picture of what? Death to life. Resurrection. Again, Elisha's ministry pointing to Jesus' ministry. Death to life. Death to life. As the axe is good for little without its axe head. Is that a fair assumption? I just got a stick. I need the axe head. So as the axe is good for little without the axe head, so man is good for little without his head. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3, Paul says that the head of man is Christ. Without him, we're nothing. Without him, we're nothing. We're, we're good for nothing. Man has lost his head, quote-unquote, and with, and without that head, we've lost always, uh, we've lost our, our moral purpose. We've lost a moral orientation. We've lost a, a moral effectiveness. We've lost hope without our head. And how can these things be recovered? Can they be recovered? Yes. How? Only by the saving power of Jesus Christ raising us from the dead and giving us a new hope giving us power in our life. Only with God's help can there be true manhood, true personhood. One only needs to call on the name of the Lord. Call on the name of the Lord. Help God. God, save me. Save me. You have to realize you need to be saved. Call on Him to be saved. You call on the name of the Lord, then all of a sudden you begin to see Acts and Acts heck. X head reunited to be finally and fully restored as a whole person. Life. Life. Finally, in chapter 13, this is outside of our 10 chapters, finally in chapter 13, we have the miracle of the man brought to life at Elisha's grave. This is amazing. Elisha's dead, but his ministry still has effect. There's some Israelites who are burying a friend of theirs. And there's some Moabites who are coming as a raiding party to raid the graves. This is a normal practice, to rob the graves. 
So these guys see these, these guys are going to come down. They're going to probably kill him. And so they run away and escape. But before they do, they take their dead friend, his body, and they throw him in Elisha's tomb. The fact that his body touches Elisha's bones. His bones. And he's raised to life. Restored to life. Is that not cool? Is Elisha's ministry substantial? Even when he's dead. His ministry is still powerful. Beloved, again, the main emphasis in Elisha's ministry was resurrection and the hope of new life. We see it again and again and again and again. And that emphasis, in that, he prefigured Jesus Christ. And Jesus said in John eleven twenty five, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will live even though he dies. And whoever lives and believes in me will never die. You'll have life. You have it to the full. And then Jesus concludes his remarks by saying this. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Do you believe this? Amen. Where do we go to find life? Jesus. If we can use Naaman as our classic example, we go, what? To that old River Jordan. Simple spiritual disciplines. By faith, trusting in Jesus and that which he's provided for us. And we will know life. God will do the impossible on our behalf, to work His will out in our life. Amen? Amen. Father, thank You again for Your grace and Your abundance. Thank You for Your provision. Thank You, Lord, for the promises of life. Thank You that You love us. And, Lord, that we can love You back. As we come to the table now, we pray, God, for, again, just a, a renewed mindset and understanding and commitment. Strengthen us, O God with the strength of your might, as we remember Jesus, as we reaffirm our commitment to him, to you, and to your will. We love you this morning. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.